Let me see. Yep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for such a good reminder of how amazing your grace is. And personally, Lord, uh, this morning, just remind me that your grace is sufficient for me, that your power is made perfect in weakness. And um, Lord, honestly, this morning, just just coming to you weak, tired, frail, um, but confident that your word isn't, that it's powerful, that it's profitable. And I pray, Lord, as we turn to your word, that you would empower us as a church, each individual and then us collectively to, to be a church that um, not only hears your word, but are, are doers of your word. Not just hearers only that deceive ourselves, as James says, but doers also. Um, Lord, I also just want to uh, take a second and, and pray and petition that you would um, use all of our kid volunteers. Thank you for the way that they're serving. Thank you for the way they're pouring out. I pray that this morning... Um, you would be known in those classrooms and that you would reveal yourself to these kids and these kids would know you and live through you. That our community would be transformed um, by the gospel that is a mustard seed. It's small, but over time it spreads and it grows and it grows. And we have vision, Lord, to see your gospel spread in this community. So we pray that you would empower that this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 16, that's where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 16, picking right up where we left off last week. Um, hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning. If you didn't, I, I just want to remind you that we have one for you. Um, they are outside, right outside the door, um, but if you want to take one home with you, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you want an ESV Bible, grab one. Um, those are our gifts to you, they're for you. Uh, and, and really why it's important this morning is because I'm going to be reading a lot of text for us this morning. So we're going to be doing all of Acts chapter 16, and we're actually going to begin at the very end of Acts chapter 15. And I plan to read that in one chunk. So hopefully you can stay, uh, stick around and, and hang in there with me. Um, I use the ESV version of the Bible. That's English standard version. Uh, I'm not a believer that one version is holier than the other, Okay. But if you wanted to follow along, I, I have the ESV. So as you turn to Acts chapter 16, um, one of the earliest songs that my kids learned in church is a song called, My God is So Big. Anybody familiar with that? I'm not going to sing it for you, um, but I will tell you what it says, okay? It says, my God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And it comes with hand motions, okay? So all of our kid volunteers, I saw you. I, I, I acknowledge you. I see you. You were wanting to do them, and I didn't ask you to. Okay, so we, we have hand motions to this song, but, but that song is such a deep theological truth, right? That God is so big, he is so strong, he is so mighty, there's nothing that our God cannot do. And, and what happens in the life of a child when they're singing that truth is they apply what they're singing with childlike faith, which means they really begin to believe, right, that God is so big and so strong and so mighty that there's nothing he cannot do. But when I started thinking about my own experience, and, and maybe you're similar um, like, something's changed. Like, as, as you get older, as you begin to grow, like, something changed. How many of you have ever seen the movie um, Hook with Robin Williams as Pan, right? It's classic. Come on. Okay, it's so good. But what happened to Pan was, was he, he grew up. And in his growing up, he began to forget who he was. And I, and I think similarly, as we grow up and we move through life, that we're tempted to forget really who God is. That he is so big, that he is so strong, that he is so mighty, that there's nothing that he cannot do. But, but the more life we live or the more experiences in life we live or the more life we live and the lack of experiences with God that we tend to have, 
we're tempted to, to shrink God, to begin to form God into the image of our own experiences or lack of experiences instead of taking him at who the God of the Bible says he is. Are you, are you following me there? So whether it's experience or lack of experience, I think we're tempted to shrink God. But this morning, that's really the idea I want to put in your head as we read our text, is that this is Paul's second missionary journey. We looked at his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And in the second missionary journey, his idea of God is really going to be tested. It's, it, and he's going to be tempted to either believe God is who he says he is or to, to shrink him. So where have we been so far? If you haven't been following along with us, we've been preaching through the book of Acts since August the 7th. We're in Acts chapter 16. So you know we are not moving very quickly. That's okay, okay? It's starting to speed up. But we're in Acts chapter 16. But in Acts chapter 13 and 14, what we saw is that the gospel has entered into the Gentile nations. That the church is no longer just Jewish any longer. It's, it's Gentiles also. And Paul and Barnabas specifically have been seeing that through the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, Gentile churches are popping up all over, specifically the region of Galatia. And then we saw last week in Acts chapter 15 that the Jewish church affirms it. They, they approve this limitless move of God, that, that the gospel is for the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are about to launch out onto their second missionary journey. From their first missionary journey, they knew God is so big, God is so strong, God is so mighty. They experienced that God is who he says he is, but that core belief is about to be tested even before they get off on their second missionary journey. So as I read this text, as we unpack this text, and as we follow the Apostle Paul through this second missionary journey, I want us to see some reasons that we too are tempted to shrink God. Right, to not take him at who he says that he is, to put him, to put him in a box. Right? Y'all ever heard that phrase, that proverbial putting God in a box? That we want to we contain him, we want to put a lid on him, that he wants to be small enough that fits in our image instead of who he says that he is. But I pray as we watch the Apostle Paul, we'll be encouraged to lift the lid of, of God a little bit and really begin to believe he is who he says he is. So here we go. I think I have it in me for round number two. It's a lot of text. Acts chapter 15 Verse 36 is where we're beginning. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, Acts chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received that order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Oh, deep breath. All right, y'all with me? Who's asleep? Wake up. Man, what an incredible story. And the reason I wanted us to read that as a single narrative is because when you read that and really engage in that, I mean, we, we see divine deliverance. We see visions of direction. We see demon possession being cast out. When we read this, the response that really should be solicited is, there's nothing God can't do. Like, he is big, he is strong, and he is mighty. He can do all things. But as I mentioned earlier, we're often tempted to not believe that, to, to shrink God. And, and I want to give you point number one. We're tempted to shrink God or to put him in a box because of our experiences. 
the experiences that we engage in through life. Like, like look first with Paul and Barnabas here. Y'all, everything was going so well for these guys. Everywhere they went, disciples were made. You take Barnabas's natural gifting and relationships and encouragement, coupled with Paul's passion and his ability to teach and to communicate and his high intellect. I mean, these guys were dynamic, dynamic team. Everywhere they went, disciples were being made. In fact, it began a long time before their first missionary journey. Barnabas had invited Paul, if you remember, from Tarsus to join him in the pastoring of the church of Antioch. These guys have been together for a long time, engaged in deep, powerful, fruitful work. What dynamic team do you think of that's, that's a couple? Right, Kareem and Magic for you older people in the room? Pippin and Jordan, nobody? Still no? Okay. Shaq and Kobe? Okay, let me give you one I know you'll know. Misty May and Kerry Walsh, anybody remember them? Nobody? The volleyball players? They were amazing, yeah, I mean. Okay, Brady Belichick? Yeah, okay, here we go. All right, so you get the point. Barnabas and Paul were a dynamic team, and they had learned together over their time serving with one another that there's nothing God cannot do, that he is big, he is strong, and he is mighty. But then the unexpected happened. Look with me at verse 37 of Acts 15. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Paul considered John Mark a deserter. He, he had abandoned them, and Paul wanted somebody he could rely on and trust. Barnabas, though, he has such a natural bent towards relationships, so loyal, such a developer of people, he saw the situation differently. So a sharp disagreement arose. The Greek there is an emotional, heated debate. And what's the outcome of that debate, y'all? Harmony? Peace? Reconciliation? No, they separated from each other. Brady has flown south to Tampa. You with me? Okay, I'll, I'll stop. And y'all, although I, I joke like that, if you put yourself in Barnabas and Paul's shoes, like this was a deep wound. This is deep, miserable pain. These guys have relied on each other through thick and thin. And now the result of this heated argument is a separation. And here's where I want it to kind of get personal for you. Like, this stuff happens all the time, doesn't it? Like, how many of you have ever been hurt by the hands of other Christians? Maybe even within the church. And here, here's the sub-point. Many times we are tempted to shrink God or to put him in a box because of our experiences with hurt from others. Right? With, with, with hurt from others. The number one reason, statistically, that missionaries leave the mission field is in-team conflict. Often, the number one reason people tend to leave the church is hurt by other Christians, even at the hands of spiritual authorities like pastors or elders. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you can resonate with an experience like this? How many of you know somebody that can resonate with an experience like this? You've been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by Christians. We often like to compare or liken the church to a hospital. You know, a place where the wounded and, and the hurting and the vulnerable can come and they can receive care and, and nurture and love and mend towards wholeness. But what tends to happen is the hurt and the vulnerable come only to be further in their hurt and their vulnerability. Y'all, it happens all the time. You began your walk with God on fire, right? Overwhelmed by his grace and his patience and his love in your life, his transformation of your life. And you think, this is awesome. And then you joined a community of faith. 
and you begin to really question, is God this big? Like, is he so amazing? Is he strong? Is he mighty? And out of self-protection with that hurt, what you're tempted to do is you're tempted to put God in a box. You're tempted to conclude God must not be caring. He must not be loving. Because how would he ever love me if he lets me walk through something like this? That's what Christians do to other people. I don't want anything to do with that crap. Y'all hear this all the time just because of the pain and the hurt at the hands of other Christians. Y'all, the Psalms, just a little tangent here. The Psalms are for you. Like, they are for you. There's a lot of them in here that will help you put emotion to things that you feel. And the Psalms don't hold back. In Psalm 55, if you want to just jot that one down, the psalmist who's writing this this song is, is deeply hurt by people close to him. He says, my heart is in anguish within me. I mean, listen to this pain. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. And how does he respond? What is he tempted to do? He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would just fly away and be at rest. He fantasizes. Just wants to escape. Just wants to get out of Dodge. Get out of here. Church, I can speak through a lot of experience to this. I personally have been deeply wounded and hurt at the hands of other Christians. And when I was walking through that season, it wasn't that I wanted to be a dove. I really wasn't thinking about that. It was more a, a truck driver. That was what I thought about. Not because I think there's anything wrong with being a truck driver. It's just that you don't have to be with any people. It's like, this is awesome. I can just hours and hours just crossing the United States, like just doing my stuff, audiobooks, podcast worship by myself. This sounds amazing. That was my escape. When I felt God calling me into pastoral ministry, someone told me, listen, Andrew, the church is amazing. It, it's just the people, you know, and he's not wrong. You know, that person was not wrong, but, but it happens all the time. The church attracts hurting people. And you know what happens with hurting people? They hurt people. You ever heard that phrase? Hurt people hurt people. And if you choose to be vulnerable and risk transparency for the sake of Christian community, you are, in effect, opening yourself up to hurt. But instead of experiencing hurt and shrinking God and shutting the lid on that and trying to protect yourself, let me offer you another response, okay? It's the response to trust. There's nothing earth-shattering in what I'm going to say today. It's just to trust, to choose to put your faith that God is who he says he is and that he is actually big enough, strong enough, and mighty enough to use your hurt to further your relationship with him and to increase your fruitful service for him. It's what he does. It's who he is. He will use your hurt. And church, that's what Paul and Barnabas did. Look with me with with, with Barnabas. How did Barnabas respond to this deep pain he experienced? Well, he took John Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. He just got right back on mission and, and took John Mark. And you know what? John Mark came around. His development of John Mark paid massive kingdom dividends. John Mark is the person who wrote the gospel of Mark. John Mark is the person that Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 11. He says, Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. You hear how Paul's talking about this John Mark? Huge contributions to the kingdom of God, all because Barnabas continued to entrust himself to God. But look at Paul. Paul took Silas. Silas was not only a gifted minister of the gospel that we saw in Acts chapter 15, he was also a Greek citizen which we don't believe Barnabas was. And that becomes incredibly useful for Paul and his ministry because when they're wrongfully imprisoned and beaten, it was because they're what? Roman citizens. But they didn't face any trial. They were treated like strangers when they're both citizens. And that becomes really useful for Paul in ministry. 
But as Paul continued to trust God, a huge benefit came as well. Look at verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. When he came to Derby and to Lystra, the place he had been stoned in the previous couple chapters, a disciple was there named Timothy. Paul got to meet Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother, but a Greek father, and had earned quite the reputation among these churches. Church, Timothy became Paul's most trusted companion. Paul said about Timothy in Philippians 2, he says, like a son to a father, he has served me in the gospel. Timothy comes up in six of of Paul's epistles, not including the two that were directly written to Timothy, just 1 and 2 Timothy. Eight of Paul's epistles, Timothy comes up. Timothy becomes Paul's most trusted companion, all because Paul continued to trust, continued to have faith that even in the midst of that deep hurt and that deep pain at the hands of Barnabas, God could use it. The psalmist, let me, let me give you some good news. Psalms are always like this. They, they throw out all the pain, throw out all the mourning, throw out all the stuff, and they always conclude with faith. They always conclude with, I trust you. This is what Psalm 55, 22 says. It says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. The psalmist trusted, the psalmist trusted, the psalmist trusted, and he learned, God is big, God is strong, God is mighty, he will sustain you. But let me give you a a quick, before I move to the second point, let me give you a quick note about verse 3. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. I hope you read this and you're like, what? It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Y'all remember what we preached on last week? Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council decided that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to become Christians. The decision made just one chapter earlier was they don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. So what's going on here? Is this a compromise? Is this a contradiction of what we uh, talked about last week? The answer simply is no, and I'm going to speed through this. Timothy was not a Gentile. Timothy was a Jew. Timothy had a Jewish mother but had a Greek father, so Timothy wasn't a Gentile. Acts 15 says, do not circumcise Gentiles in order for them to become Christian. Timothy, being a Jew, had just never been circumcised. So Paul said, to lean into your heritage, I want to have you circumcised, and I want you to go into the temples with me. We'll see that on and on throughout Acts. I want you to be accepted by the Jewish people so we can preach the gospel to them. That's why it says because of the Jews in that region. So Timothy is not a compromise or a contradiction of Acts 15. All right, so let's jump jump back in. So everything's going great. Look at verse 5. They continued to trust. The outcome of that trust is now there's two missionary teams. Barnabas has his team. Paul has his team, and the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Everything's going good again. And then this weird thing happens in verse 6. Paul, knowing he's called to preach the gospel among Gentiles, is forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So he goes, okay, if I can't go north, let me head south. Bithynia is south of, of that region of Asia. Says when they come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. What on earth? And here's subpoint number two: we're tempted to shrink God when our experience is one of unmet expectations. Right? Paul had an expectation that God would continue to use him, just as he did in Acts 13 and 14. And everywhere Paul went in Acts 13 and 14, disciples were made and churches were formed. So he tries to go north up into the region of Asia. That's not the continent of Asia, just the region north of Galatia. Holy Spirit won't allow it. So he goes, okay, well, I'll head south. Spirit of Jesus forbids it. 
all of these unmet, just closed doors after closed doors after closed doors. How many of you have experienced unmet expectations or closed doors in your relationship with God? Like, be honest here. Like, here, here's how it goes. You said yes to God. I love new believers, like brand new believers. You remember that if you were a brand new believer, just that fresh grace. Everything's so good. You're seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. Like, living for God is so easy, and it's so fun, and it's so fruitful. Until it's not. Life hits you, right? You lose a loved one unexpectedly. You lose, you lose a job. Sickness begins to come into your family, leaving you and doctors confused. Your family that you thought would just receive you and accept your new faith actually hates it. All the friends that you once had don't want to be around you anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Life begins to hit you. It's not easy anymore. And quietly but quickly, we begin to shrink God. We get tempted to put him in a box because this just isn't the life I expected. This, this isn't what I expected God to do. The primary source of frustration, I see it over and over and over again, in people's walk with God is unmet expectation. You expected when you began to follow God that life would get easier. Y'all, he never promised that. Right? Show me, somebody show me where that is. I don't see, I see that he promised to never leave you or forsake you when it's hard. But I didn't see that it makes it easier. You expected God to lead you to your future husband and wife, but yet you're still single. Right, you expected your marriage with some God sprinkled on it to be perfect. And it took you, what, three days married to realize your spouse is like not perfect? To the point where now your marriage may even be hanging on, like just by a thread. You expected it to be easy. You expected things to go great, and it's not. Man, as a parent, you, you expect your kids to continue to walk on the, the straight and narrow. But you're beginning to see that their friends loom larger than their faith does. Over and over and over again, we, we have expectations of God, and it goes in opposite directions. It seems like closed doors. So when God doesn't meet your expectations, how do you respond to that? How, what are you tempted to respond to? Oftentimes, we just conclude, he's just not who I thought he was. He's not as big. He's not as strong. He's not as mighty. But church, instead of tr uh, shrinking God, I, I just want to encourage you. It's the same point as last time. Just, just trust him. Trust the God of the Bible, not the God of your perceived experiences. And that's all experience is doing, is it's forming a God into the image of your life experience. Not taking God at who he says that he is. Where we need to form our experiences into who he says that he is. Trust. That's what Paul did. Paul heads north, door closed. Heads south, door closed. Continues to trust. Just keeps moving. He's like, well, I came from the east. Where's he going to head next? I guess I'll head west. That's the purpose of God. In every one of these closed doors, it was a purpose of God to funnel him into the continent of Europe. Paul was never frustrated or disappointed or despairing when he hit these unmet expectations. He just kept trusting, just kept trusting. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul says this about his ministry. He said, I'm often perplexed, but never driven to despair. You ever been that way in your relationship with God? Like, just confused. Like, often perplexed, but never driven to despair. Church, if you don't know our story, you're, um, I'm, I hate to say it again because so many who do know it are like so tired of hearing it. We were missionaries for a good long uh, point in time, and then we were kicked out of our country in July of 2019. When we were kicked out, y'all, I was, I was despairing. I was more than, I was perplexed. Don't get me wrong. I was confused. God, you had called us here. You made it clear. Our, our ministry was fruitful. Church, there was a people group of 55 million people strong with 0.00% known believers. 
And we're living among them and seeing them baptized. And then, boom, over, gone. No more access to the country. I was far from perplexed. I was angry. You ever been angry at God? That's a slippery slope, isn't it? Because then you're like, why am I supposed to be angry at God? So you just start like shoving it and like hiding it. So for two years, I'm just wrestling with this confusion and this anger, and I don't know what God's doing. And you know what he said to me? Nothing. For two years, just silence, just sitting in this pain and this confusion, perplexed and driven to despair. And you know, after two and a half years, we were finally presented an opportunity to plant an English-speaking church among Muslim refugees in Europe. And we were like, this is it. This is it. It's all it was. Uh, we tried to go north, didn't happen. Tried to go south, didn't happen. He's funneling us to plant this church in Europe. So 10 hours before we get on a plane, for the last step in this process, our trip was canceled due to this thing called COVID-19 and its restrictions and quarantine. Perplexed. Just like, what are you doing, God? Like, we're trying to follow you here. But you know what? It's good. After two and a half years of wrestling with God, we were no longer despairing. We came out of that with deeper faith deeper trust that he can be trusted, that he's faithful even when we are faithless. So we were perplexed, but we weren't driven to despair this time. And we felt like, man, God, you're, you're doing something. Long story short, two days later, we realized God's calling us to stay in America. Ten days after that, we're scouting out this little town that we had never heard of called Richmond Hill, Georgia. And barring the gnats, it's the greatest place on earth. I just say all that to say that even your closed doors, even your unmega expectations, they're used in the hands of a mighty, powerful, strong God. He's always working. He plays chess when we're playing checkers. And we get mad because we can't see steps ahead. And he's got it all figured out. Just trust him. Trust him. Cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. And those closed doors became a massive open door to the Apostle Paul. Right? So they passed Mysiah, verse 8. They went down to Troas. And what happens in Troas? A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. They woke up and said, God's obviously calling us to Macedonia. Let's go preach the gospel to them. Unmet expectations tempt us to shrink God. But if we continue to trust, he will lead you. Continue to have faith that he will direct your steps. So conclude point number one. One of the reasons we're tempted to shrink God and not believe he is who he says he is is because of our experiences. Experiences with hurt with, uh, from others, experience with closed doors or unmet expectations, however you want to say it. But there's another reason that I'm going to quickly give us that we're tempted to shrink God. And that's our lack of experiences. So it's not just the experiences we have in life. It's actually our lack of experiences with God. Paul's unmet expectations led to divine direction. A vision of a particular man that leads them to their city. Y'all... Please don't read Scripture nonchalantly and apathetically. That's amazing that God would forbid things. And Paul didn't know why. He just kept trusting, just kept walking. And all of a sudden, he's having these visions of a particular man. That should lead us to conclude God can do anything. He is strong, he is mighty, and he is powerful, and he can do anything. But here's where temptation sinks in. We read stuff like that in Scripture and think, well, he's never done that for me. I've never had a vision telling me what to do. I've been seeking God's will for years. What, why is it so cloak and dagger for me? Why is everything so hidden? Why won't he do that? Why won't he make it clear for me? And that lack of experience tempts you to put your faith in a God that is smaller than the God of the Bible. You see what I'm saying here? But, but Paul didn't. Kept trusting, 
God did give him an experience of a vision, and I love this. It's so funny that the vision of the man from Macedonia actually turned out to be what? A woman from Thyatira. It's amazing. Look at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, they went to the riverside where they supposed a place of prayer to be. Jewish law stated that for there to be a synagogue in a particular city, they needed a quorum of 10 Jewish men. And if you don't have 10 Jewish men, that's okay. You can have a place of prayer. It just has to be outside the city down near a body of water. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they get to Philippi, realize there's no synagogue here. So they head down to the river thinking there may be some worshipers there. And what do they find? Not a man of Macedonia, but a bunch of women gathered and worshiping and praying. And this woman was a God-fearer. Y'all remember what God-fearer means? And she was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile, but she had rejected the polytheism of her own culture and put her faith in the God of the Jews. She was just not converted according to Jewish law. And that woman's house, Lydia is a, is a wealthy woman, seller of purple. I don't have time to go into it. Wealth, I mean, deep wealth. But her house becomes the location of the church in Philippi. God is so big. He's so strong and he's so mighty. He can direct with vision. And Paul didn't think, well, you're not what I was looking for. Right? Because he wouldn't have been. I mean, according to the vision, that's not what he was looking for. But Paul continued running open and trusting and faithful and ends up planting a church in Philippi in the home of this woman named Lydia. So then what happens? Probably about a week later, verse 16, they go back down to that place of prayer. Probably trying to hope to convert some more of these women towards the gospel. And what happens? They are met by a demon-possessed girl, a young girl that is enslaved, enslaved spiritually to a spirit of divination and enslaved physically to a, a greedy, greedy man. And she's following around Paul and Silas, screaming out, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Like, why did Paul get annoyed at that? That's like free PR, Right? just heralding and announcing what he's there for. You would hope it's, it's attracting a crowd, but it's, it's not that clear. Um, the reason Paul gets annoyed is because the Romans would have associated the title Most High with Zeus. So in essence, with her sharing just a little bit about why they're there, but not really the reason why they're there, which is the cross of Christ, it's opening up these masses to misunderstanding and misinterpretation of what the gospel is all about. So Paul's going, you're just trying to distract people. I'm, an, I'm annoyed by it. Turns around and just cast that demon out. Did you hear what I just said? Cast a demon out. God did that. And if you read that and really engage in Scripture, you would think God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There is nothing that he cannot do. And then I'm reading your thoughts right now. The first thing you're thinking is, well, I've never seen that. I've never seen God display his power like that in spiritual warfare. And you take your lack of experience and you begin to conclude and reason God doesn't do that anymore. We begin to rationalize and, and explain away things like spiritual warfare with science and with psychology. And I can promise you this happens all the time. God is still in this business. God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing he cannot do. But we allow our lack of experience in things like this to strengthen us. Don't do it. Keep fighting. Keep having faith and trust in the God of the Bible, not in your lack of experience. Let me give you a couple more. With the expulsion of that evil spirit, verse 19, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Man, I wish I could preach on this. When the gospel starts impacting people's wallets, persecution comes, okay? 
So what do they do? They, they seize him. They seize Paul and Silas. They drag him before the rulers, and they begin to trump up the charges. They begin to play to the anti-Semitism of this city, this Roman colony, and say they're Jews. They're anti-Romans. They stir up the crowds. They attack them, beat them, throw them in prison into the inner prison with stocks on their feet. But as we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts, Christians, full of the Holy Spirit, regardless of circumstances, will praise and worship. And that's what Paul and Silas were doing. Don't you find that amazing? In prison, not knowing what the outcome, we know what the outcome is. Again, it's really easy to read this and go, well, we know exactly what's going to happen. They didn't. Right? Put yourself in the narrative. They're sitting in prison, and all they're doing is worshiping and praising. And they have a captive audience. That was a pun. Did I see that? A truly, a captive audience. Like, like other prisoners are locked into prison. They can't escape. And Paul and, Paul and Silas are like, you know what? Let's just preach the gospel to them. They're not going anywhere. They're just sharing the gospel. And what does God do? He delivers. He sends an earthquake. Gates fly open. Chains fly off. And the jailer knows that he should be killed for their escape. So he's about to commit suicide when Paul says, don't do that. And this man hits his knees because he knows the power of God is present. He says, what must I do to be saved? The jailer takes him to his house. Did y'all notice who got saved that night? His whole household. He and his whole household were baptized. Baptized in the same waters that this converted man had just washed their wounds in. That's what happens in conversion change. Y'all, that jailer would have been a savage man. Probably torturing them unnecessarily so. Now he's converted, full of the grace of God, and he's washing their wounds. Beautiful picture of conversion. So again, we read scriptures like this all the time. We go, an earthquake? Ah, coincidence, right? We explain it away. We're tempted to think, I've never seen anything like that. I've never, I've never experienced things like that. He must not do that again. But, but here's, here's one more that I know you're tempted to do. Whole households? Like how many of you think about your family and think they're beyond salvation? We all think that. You all think that. You all think of that one person. There's like no way would God save them. They're so far. They're so antithetical to the gospel of Christ. It can't happen. So because you haven't experienced it, you have rationalized and concluded God can't. That God isn't big and strong and mighty. Church, I know sometimes that that family can put um, the fun and dysfunctional. I get that. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. Nobody is beyond the grace of God, but we're tempted. We see whole households, Lydia whole household, the jailer's whole household, put their faith in Christ. Do not let your lack of experience quench your faith. God is who he says he is. He can do this. We just need to believe in him and trust him, not our experience, not our lack of experience. So that's what Paul did, and that's really all I have for you this morning, is that Paul continued to trust, continued to put his faith in the God of the Bible. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to do something a little differently. Um, I'm going to have our worship team come. And before we stand and before we sing together, we're just going to actually reflect. I want to invite you into 60 to 90 seconds, right? That's not very long. It's gonna, it feels like forever, but it's not very long. I just want to invite you to, to reflect, to think about these two questions. It's the same question asked in two different ways. Has your experience or your lack of experience serve to shrink your God? Another way of saying it is this, where's your faith? Is your faith placed in the God of the Bible 
or in your experience or your lack thereof. So I just want you to take 60 to 90 minutes, maybe as Jess plays, and think about that question. And if you begin to have thoughts about, yeah, I, I have shrunk God, just, just talk to him. Silently, he hears you, he's with you. Just talk to him. Invite him to lift the lid of your box and let him be the God of the Bible in your life. So let's take 60 to 90 minutes, I mean, 60 to 90 seconds to do that. stand with me and let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your patience, your steadfastness, your faithfulness to us, even when we're faithless. Lord, you you already know, but I'm just going to say, life's hard. And it is so easy as we attempt to live this life faithfully towards you, to shrink you, to to fit you into the box of our own lived experiences or our own lack of experiences. God, I just pray you would forgive us. Forgive us for putting our faith in anything other than who you are and who you say that you are. At its core, God, it's idolatry. Forgive us of idolatry, to, to, to bowing down to who we think that you are, who we want you to be, instead of believing you and taking you at your word. So Lord, I pray for simple faith, a childlike faith, each of us to learn who you are, who you say that you are, and take you at your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name.